0: The community has to trust developers of the cars, the users of cars, and they also have to see that these cars are going to take them to the places they have had difficulty getting to.
1: From Washington, D.C., this is The Tightrope. I'm your host, Dan Smolin. On this episode, we revisit Dr. Richard Iziki, whose earliest childhood dreams of doing meaningful work were about building beautiful buildings and cityscapes. But after earning advanced degrees in science and advocating for the environment and our urban centers, his career pivoted in a completely unexpected direction. Now, Dr. Iziki leads the charge for American transportation equity to make the full range of mobility options, and in particular, autonomous vehicles, or AVs, as readily available for inner-city residents as they are for people in our more affluent suburbs. He believes that AVs will provide safer and more accessible mobility and may greatly improve the lives of inner city residents who otherwise are deprived of quality transportation. We spoke with Dr. Aziki in June 2018. So we talked in an earlier episode about transportation equity. Mm -hmm. You were actually looking at how autonomous vehicles may be a game changer, an equity creator that could potentially help less well served urban areas. I'm wondering for those who aren't aware, what exactly are autonomous vehicles Mm -hmm. and how do you think this may be an option that would create equity in transportation?
0: So autonomous vehicle is basically a car that drives by itself and they're called driverless car. So you have companies that are building these cars that are controlled by computer, have cameras that Every millisecond, take an image of what's around them, and can basically navigate roadways, intersections, traffic, commons, circle, all these things. They can drive them by themselves without the, without the need of a driver, right? And so, companies like Google, Ford, GM, Volvo—I mean, a lot—car companies and tech companies are working together to build these cars. The main focus of what they, they talk about is safety, right? So we know that. Ninety-four percent of all accidents on the road are caused by human error. Whether it's driving by texting, alcohol um, impairment, distracted driving, and you know these things are causing fatalities on the roads. The number of deaths that are, that are connected to roadway roadway fatalities has increased in the last two or three years. Driverless cars, we take out the driver. These cars are very more careful. They're be much more safe, and they will have to be much more safer. Right. Um, now there's still debate on that, you mm-hmm. know, and you know there's a lot of questions we have to answer, and whether are they really safe, and what are some of the things that we need to look at to make sure that they are going to be safe. And in terms of really helping a, a community that has been typically underserved by transit, it really depends on the implementation of the cars. So one of the things that we really encourage, uh, I, really enc- I personally really encourage, is we don't want these cars to build upon the of occupancy vehicle. Um, paradigm that has kind of defined American transportation for the last 70 years. We encourage sharing and if we can encourage sharing where we can get people out of the cars single opposite cars and into carpools, multiple passenger rides and using those cars to take people from where they are to where they need to go and making sure that the cars are powered by clean energy specific electric engines then you know you're going to have a cleaner environment you're gonna have more accessible connections to people in these communities. And if you can do it in a cost-effective way, that supplements public transit, and not replaces it, and supplements it. Yeah. That you're gonna have much more options for people in these communities to get where you need to go. It's gonna be cost-effective, so it's not gonna be a major hit on their budgets. And they're gonna be able to have a higher quality of life.
1: How does it become cost-effective?
0: It becomes cost-effective with sharing. So, if you have more passengers in a ride, it's going to be less cost per consumer. It's going to be where it's going to be more cost-effective when it gets more ubiquitous. So, you have more cars and more options. So, people, if they want, they, they want to take, want to find a car that takes them from one point to another. It's not going to take 20, 30 minutes to find the next cars. You know, if there's more cars, you know, it's going to be less. Some more, of course, more availability means lower cost. That's another way. Ideally, if you can match it to what we call the first mile, last mile. So maybe as you supplement public transit, you know, which is fairly cost effective in itself right now, if you have the car going from point there needs to be picked up to either a bus stop connection or a rail connection and making that trip, then if you're able to do that at a large enough scale or the the cost scale goes down because of the size and the number of cars out there making these first mile, last mile connections, then you'd be able to get a a transportation trip that can be affordable for the average user of the system.
1: Okay, so it's not just an AV will take you from point A to point B, your origin and your destination. It Mm -hmm. could be that it's part of a broader transportation trip.
0: Right. Yes.
1: So it takes me to the metro rail stop at Mm -hmm. Franconia Mm -hmm. and then I go into the city and terminate wherever I need to go, Right. come back to Franconia and it takes me back to my home Mm -hmm. or wherever I need to go.
0: Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah. And it depends on also whether, you know, where, you know, where you live as well. So, you know, we talk, a lot of people are talking about, you know, yeah, maybe the car will take me from point A to point B. That's gonna lead to a whole host of other issues, you know, that related to sprawl and infrastructure development and all, and all that that we have to address. And because of all those extenuating factors, you know, that could affect the overall cost of that trip, right? So I think in, when you're looking at you know how these cars are going to impact communities, you know, you really want to see okay, what are the needs of the community? Is that community heavily dependent on public transit and they need that public that public transit option to help? Or you have some communities that are like devoid of transit. They're all very car oriented and you want to encourage a more sharing. You want to encourage multi-passenger rides so you don't increase congestion. You don't increase sprawl. Those kind of of things.
1: When you take the human out of this, Mm -hmm. the cab driver who doesn't want to drive to the bad neighborhood, quote unquote, will people of color accept the narrative that maybe an AV will be there when they need them and the light won't turn off. And I mean, what we've all known is that in urban areas, sometimes cabs will pass people of color, Mm -hmm. it's
0: horrible. Yeah.
1: How do we build a mindset for the possibility of an AV Mm -hmm. as a transportation equity vehicle with a community that may be skeptical, if not cynical, Mm -hmm. based on past experiences with things like cabs and stuff like that. Could you talk to that?
0: yeah I can and it's it's a good question. The community has to trust developers of the cars, the users of their cars, and they also have to see that these cars are going to take them to the places they have had difficulty getting to mm-hmm. now, the algorithms that define you know how the car functions, we have to make sure that those algorithms are not biased because they're of course algorithms are developed by humans and humans have biases, so we need to have multiple inputs to make sure that these algorithms are gonna pick up people no matter where they are, or where they live, and get them to the place where they need to go in the same reasonable time, right? Uh, so there definitely has to be that trust. So I think with people in a, in a community where you distrust the whole taxi cab system, you know you have to say, okay, are these, are these cars gonna take me to where I need to go in a reasonable amount of time? Are these cars going to be safe, right? Um, I think there was a study that just came out that said that autonomous cars need to be four to five times safer than regular human cars, in order for people to be like comfortable using them. So there's that huge gap of trust, you know, of, of like, okay, is this car not gonna be hacked? Is this car gonna not get me an accident? All those things have to play a role in accept the AV as a transportation option in their community.
1: And we're gonna have to become better at, as pedestrians at not jaywalking. And I bring mm-hmm. that up because somebody actually got killed, I believe. Mm -hmm. by an autonomous vehicle because somebody jaywalked. Now, I think that the AV manufacturer is probably getting a lot of PR hit, Mm -hmm. but we as pedestrians are gonna have to learn better behaviors so that the transportation works properly. Would you agree?
0: Um, I I would say we all have a role in that. It's not just pedestrians, it's definitely the, the software itself, right? Now with the person that got killed, it was from the recent National Transportation Safety Board report that came out the car did see the biker. It did see it in time, and its emergency braking system was disabled um, because the Uber who was running the car and you know, who was running the software, the car software, and Volvo was the actual car that did the emergency braking system, which usually would kick in, um, didn't work. And the driver, the human driver, which is a precaution with these cars, you know, anytime you tested them and you have to have a human driver in the vehicle to make sure things are working. At that same time, she was looking down at the console before the, and then by the time she saw the biker, she couldn't stop and, and it hit her. So we all have a role to play in developing a safer transportation system. We don't want to place blame on pedestrians, place blame right. just on pedestrians, place blame on the drivers, place blame on the cars. You know, we all have. I think we all have a a, a role to play in making sure that we have a safer transportation system, that we're following the rules that we're walking or need to walk, that the cars are driving in a way that makes sure that they take into account pedestrians. And because you know, the car's bigger than pedestrian, right? It's got to be the one that's more defensive, right? I think. So we all, I think, have a, a role to play in um, developing a safer system for all of us. So. These, fat- these fatalities um, don't happen.
1: I wonder if another barrier is going to be a national security aspect, which is how hackable mm-hmm. are these technologies? How do we have to imagine the worst in order to make sure it doesn't happen? Mm-hmm. Any thoughts on that?
0: No, that's, that's, that's a legitimate concern. You're seeing that a lot of the safety advocates who feel that these cars are developing way too fast Or they don't feel that the companies are incorporating the cybersecurity aspect. So it's going to be on the responsibility of the companies that are developing the software through open sharing of data, through testing, making sure that the people who can evaluate the security of the software that powers these cars, we all need to be in the conversation. You know, there can't be any hidden information or any hidden knowledge that the people who can make these decisions about. Are these cars safe? They need to know everything, right? So I really encourage, I personally encourage open data sharing, you know, okay, if a car all of a sudden makes a wrong turn, you know, and the the person's not driving it, why is that the case? That needs to be shared with the people who can answer that question. Um, They need to be shared with the people who are potentially could buy that car in the future. That needs to be shared with the, you know, if we do have a sharing economy, like the companies that are going to own these cars, because you need to establish consumer trust. As I mentioned that study earlier, four to five times more safe. There's a lot that has to happen. And if we, if the consumer doesn't feel like the the security of these cars is to a point where they're comfortable, they're not going to buy them, they're not going to ride in them. The companies who are developing the software need to be open with the experts and the general community about how are they addressing cybersecurity.
1: You mentioned Ford Motor Company before
0: there's one of the many uh, companies that are investing in this technology
1: I have this vision that Motor Company is going to drop off of their brand it's going to be Ford and that it's not going to be about cars and f150 trucks but it's going to be about a, a meta value of mobility mm-hmm. whatever that means right do we need to start using that word or
0: you know it's it's interesting you say that Dan because they're are discussions within some of these you know um, companies about changing from a traditional operator company to a mobility company right so the term that's thrown around a lot is mobility as a service so these companies are going to start putting more of their resources into developing systems that encourage autonomous vehicle sharing GM already has something like that called Maven, where they mm. bought, they purchase the cars, and then people use them to share. Like, so you 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 get into Maven car, it takes you, you ride it other passengers, it takes you where you need to go. Um, they're looking to build more electric cars. They're looking to build more hybrid cars. They're looking to partner with companies like Lyft and Uber and Via um, to invest in these sharing services. So they're looking not just to make cars. They're looking to they're looking at the, how transportation is changing and they're looking to get into those different spaces so they can stay ahead of the curve.
1: You know, many years ago I was in the advertising business and we had an international air carrier as a client. Mm -hmm. And every discussion was about load factor. How do we get as many people seated in that aircraft so that it positively impacts our return on investment? Mm -hmm. And I think about that because I wonder if the, the whole idea of load factor is becoming antiquated. We have a bus that goes out. It has 44 seats, maybe more, maybe less. Mm -hmm. And routes are probably determined upon load factor. How much usage can we develop out of that vehicle so that more people are using it and not less? Mm -hmm. Is the idea of mobility going to change load factor? And in doing so, are we going to have freedom to develop vehicles that address a particular community's need whether it be large or small, or hard to get to, or mm-hmm. easy to get to. Any thoughts on that?
0: It's a good question. I think the way we look at how we transport people and how many we transport at a time is there's gonna be some changes. But I think we always want to also be aware that the more people you can move in a short amount of time in less vehicles, the better, right? Mm-hmm. That's multiple users that you're taking out of, this, of a single office car that you that again from point A to point B and it makes transportation system much more effective, right? It can be easy that with the Dresden and Thomas vehicles, you can see, okay, well, we can have more people in their own car. Their, their, what they call the value of time mm-hmm. is, is um, increased because now they don't have to drive. They can do other things, theoretically.
1: Listen to the tightrope podcast, yeah. we hope.
0: Yeah, that, that too. <laughs> and so that could change the way we look at how we move people and how many we should move at a time but that i think as i mentioned also leads to other consequences increased congestion increased sprawl so the natural inclination is to yeah let's just have more cars that you know have one or two or three people but you still have that many people many that a certain city has this many people to move and the infrastructure is not going to change that much because it's quite expensive right. to build right so i would say that you although that paradigm could change in terms of how we look at what it means to move people, there's still a lot of the current paradigm that I think we need to keep.
1: I bring up the idea because uh-huh. I lived in a, in a city, New Haven, Connecticut, that historically had trolley cars. Uh-huh. And then after World War II, something happened, maybe GM, GM manufactured a lot of city buses. Uh-huh. And those trolley tracks disappeared. Uh-huh. And they had to get people on that bus. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the bus was of a certain size. I, I guess where I'm going with this is, is this going to give us opportunities to modify the transportation vehicle? Could they be larger in some places, smaller in others? You mm-hmm. know, like the case with air travel, you know, a lot, of, a lot of airports now are viable because they're using smaller jets between gateways mm-hmm. than they were before. And mm-hmm. so they're, they're not losing as much money. Maybe they're making more money. Can the same principle be applied? I mean, are are we going to have flexibility or is the consumer going to be able to have a voice in this to say, Mm -hmm. yeah, I'm willing to ride with other people because that makes sense Mm -hmm. and I get the the values of it. But let's say I live in a less well-served community and it's got strange roads or it's got bad weather. Will transportation equity actually create opportunities for everybody along the production chain to mm-hmm. create vehicles that are better prescribed to the needs of particular communities
0: I th- yeah I think so if the conversation is established at the beginning in the design the planning of the vehicles the implementation mm-hmm. the policy you know all the all these steps in terms of making a car you uh, making a robust car whatever you know transportation mode developing it, Using it, now that that entire ecosystem, there has to be a focus on equity as a concern. How are who are making this vehicle for? Where is it going to be used? Mm-hmm. You know, where is it going to? You know, how is it how is it going to pick up people? And are we developing the system to specifically connect to the needs of those that have habitually typically underserved? underserved? Mm-hmm. Working with the communities, you know, talking with them directly. Like, what do you need? You know, what's your what's been your issue when you're trying to get to work? What's been your issue when you're trying to take your child to help to the to daycare mm-hmm. or to school? And even, and, and I think it's not just the cars themselves, but it's also the system as a whole. So, as I mentioned, the cars, autonomous vehicles, play a role, right? Mm-hmm. But we have to make sure that we're looking at the entire transportation system. Let's not beget sidewalk, you know, safe sidewalks. Let's not beget um, clearly defined crosswalks. Right. Um, let's not beget adequate public transit that is is might is likely more cost effective for that, that for that community, members of that community. This all needs to be a system wide thought process that looks at all the things such as cost, time of time access, time to destinations, and making sure that again everybody, no matter where they live or what they look like, has access and get to where you need to go within a reasonable amount of time. I think IVs could play a role in that if they're implemented in the right way. Right. Um, But all those other things I mentioned need to play a part too.
1: So I have two questions to ask you. The first has to do with Congress. We can't avoid Congress. It's still a huge source of funding. And from a transportation standpoint, I mean, we're paying a lot of taxes that really the the benefit should go to the most important transportation projects. So Mm -hmm. I want to ask you a question, you know, given your familiarity with the CBC and and really how transportation is used, uh, how transportation is viewed at the federal level. Mm -hmm. If you had an opportunity to address, let's say, the U.S. House Transportation and Infrastructure Committee Uh about. The benefit, the essential benefits of AVs. How would you frame it in a way that perhaps a member of Congress could best
0: appreciate? Right, and and, there, and there's been discussions about that. I mean, I'll, I'll, this is a caveat. I mean, they've the House has passed a bill I think last year. Um, the Senate is still debating on it. It's called the AV Start Act, AV S T A R T Act, and so there's already a lot of discussions in this space. Mm-hmm. Now, as addressing the committee, I would say that one of the things that they need to focus on is safety standards, right? You know, if you're going to develop legislation that is going to encourage the development of these cars on the roads, you need to make sure that they're safe, right? You need to make sure that the, the standards that define what safety means are rooted in science and rooted in research. Mm-hmm. They're also they have input from all advocates. Um, right now, a lot of the people who are researching this, this are researching these bills, think that a lot of the push is coming from the companies. There needs to be the communities themselves. There needs to be the safety exp- experts. There needs to be the cybersecurity experts. Mm-hmm. Um, they all need to be in the in the room, right, making this um, in, in, in taking part of this discussion. So that's the first thing I want to mention. And then the second mm-hmm. thing is allowing because this is transportation is a very local issue, right? I mean we have yes. it's a it's a yeah, if we get funded federally, right? And the federal funding funnel to the states and the state DOTs dole it out to different projects, right? Mm-hmm. What Thomas Vehicles I think you're gonna have to change the way you look at that relationship, right? Mm-hmm. This is a very local issue. Cities are the streets in the cities are very different depending on, you know, where you are. Right. So, having more local control in terms of how these AVs are implemented, yeah and where they go and how are they used, I think is something that I would push for. It shouldn't be more of a top down focus, It should be more of a bottom up, right bottom and, up right and the city should be able to the company should be able to work with the city specifically to say, okay, we, we want to do testing on the, on our roads. You need to be able to you know provide this, you need to be able to guarantee. A certain safety factor or you know we want you to test in these specific areas and then when we feel like we're comfortable we'll expand. The cities need to have, I mean, cities and municipalities need to have more control yes. uh, and say so in how these vehicles are implemented. So those are the two things that I would mention that Congress is make sure that the safety standards are rooted in strong research mm-hmm. verified by multiple parties and secondly that the the cities and municipalities who by and large control you know have have the biggest say in how the roads are used in cities to make sure that they have a say in how autonomous vehicles are going to be utilized in their cities.
1: One last question, and this is a futuristic one. Mm-hmm. It's futuristic because autonomous vehicles are futuristic. They're, we yeah. haven't we haven't realized the the full benefit and potential of them yet. Mm-hmm. We talked a lot about transportation equity, creating more of it, and and certainly the benefits to less well-served urban areas, Mm -hmm. urban parts of cities. Mm -hmm. Here in Washington, D.C., Southeast Washington is a historically African-American community, and unfortunately, the least well-served of all wards within Washington, Mm D.C. But let's take a hopeful look at the future, Mm -hmm. 30 years out, 2048. Mm -hmm. What does Southeast look like now? from an aspect of AVs? Has the community been revitalized? Are there new businesses? What does it look like? And is it has it avoided
0: gentrification? That's a big question. That's yeah. a really, really good question. You know, and I'm not going to say that I'm going to be the expert in what Southeast is going to look like now. I personally hope that there is increased development in the community and that development, one, needs to involve the residents right mm-hmm. and that they have a say in how their community grows and and prospers um, I've always been someone that is um, focused on engaging local community whether it's involving if the new parts are being built you know already hiring people from local community so local hire I definitely push It's something that the DOT had a pilot on before uh, in the Obama administration before um, the current administration pushed that up and then the cities, working with the community leaders in those wards to provide development that is going to help the residents in those communities prosper and grow and and move upward, right? They need to be involved, right? And so how AVs play into this? As I mentioned, if they're cost-effective, are they going to take people from where they need to, where they are for where they need to go compared to their current you know, SAS? Or is it gonna help reduce that commute time? Is it going to help encourage more involvement in public transportation? AVs and public transportation should be working with each other Mm -hmm. to provide a more robust public transportation system. I would like to see in areas like Ward 7 and Ward 8 that the community is involved, that they are not being pushed out, but they're being revitalized. You mentioned gentrification and revitalization. There's a difference revitalization is helping to build the community for the residents there and that they have a say in what that development looks like and that they're getting the benefits of that. Where gentrification always, unfortunately, seems to be a, a, a connected with displacement. Right. So developers come and build for a certain group that's not the people in the community and through increased property tax, increased property values that they can't afford, rents go up, they get pushed out because they can't afford it. But the development needs to include them. It needs to help them to have be have access to better schools, to better job centers, to better food access and education. All these things. And if A B S can play a role in that, then I'm all for it. And I think in 20 if we move for if we establish that as a priority in these communities, then in 2048 you're going to see a much better community. But if we don't establish that. As a priority, right. you're gonna get even more inequitable access and get even more start divides in income and quality of life. That's not the way you need to go.
1: Well, this has been an incredibly interesting discussion, and I thank you for being on the tightrope. Before we leave, could you point our listeners to your thought leadership? Uh, What website do you have, and where Mm -hmm. can they learn more about you?
0: Sure. So if you want to follow me, the website is drrcezike.com, spelled D-R-R-C-E-Z-I-K-E.com. You can follow me on websites where I post a lot on issues such as the environment, uh, transportation access and STEM education, which are the three fields that I am most passionate about. I am also quite active on social media, um, as I mentioned: Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can find me at D R R C E Z I K E or Doctor Riziki on any of those uh, platforms, and follow me. and I look forward to uh, hearing your thoughts and comments. Please feel free to reach out. I look forward to uh, you know you know hearing from people who listen to this podcast and just engaging them on issues that I think we all find very important.
1: Indeed it is. And I thank you for being on the tightrope.
0: I'm glad to be here. Thank you, Dan. We'll
1: get you back soon, I hope.
0: I'll look forward to it.
1: Thanks again to our guest, transportation equity expert, Dr. Richard Aziki, for walking the tightrope with us. Links to his website and other resources are available on our website at dansmolin.com. Please check out our past episodes on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts by keywording The Tightrope with Dan Smolin, and if you like what you hear, please give us a five-star rating and post your comments like listener Modulated Canine Chaser who writes, The Tightrope is very well executed and interesting to listen to. Thank you! Don't forget to subscribe to our mailing list, and please suggest topics that you believe we should tackle in future episodes by writing us at info at dansmolin.com. From Washington, D.C., this is The Tightrope. I'm Dan Smolin. And do remember this, our best days lie ahead. Have a great and successful week, everyone.